Jackie. I'm here with the Sexy Politico, and this week we're talking with Haley Shapley. And Haley is an author. She and uh, she, can you tell us a little bit about your book and about your other writing and other and other advocacy work and things of that nature? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. First of all, I am an author and a journalist. I've written about a lot of different things in my career. Um, including being a travel writer for a long time. I've written about retail, health and fitness. But in recent years, I've been really focused on uh, my book project, which is called Strong Like Her, a celebration of rule breakers, history makers, and unstoppable athletes. And it is a cultural history about women and physical strength. It starts in ancient times and it goes all the way through today, um, making a connection between strong women and the many ways they contributed to society at various points in time. So some of the stops along the way include the Olympics in ancient Greece, the circus rings of the early 1900s, the Sands of Muscle Beach in the 1930s, the marathon courses of the 60s, the weight rooms of the 70s, and then, of course, we've got the soccer fields and running tracks and basketball courts of today. Um, so it kind of looks at how our ideas about uh, muscularity and physically strong women have evolved over time. As someone with a history background, I do know a little bit about the, the changing shape of the female body and how that has changed over time, what was acceptable and what was normal and what was socially proper and a lot of that also had to do with feet, women's gar undergarments and things of that nature would that would you agree with that yeah absolutely clothing comes up a lot throughout the book it's kind of one of those through lines that pops up in all of the chapters because clothes are interestingly kind of a method of control um, and we see that with something like the corsets and the long skirts that kind of prohibited women from being able to move their bodies very much. Um, but we see throughout time different standards for what is considered acceptable for women to wear. Um, in some cases, being modest um, was really harmful, like when women were trying to learn to swim. And I cover a, uh, a tragedy that happened in the early 1900s in New York in my book, in which um, many women drowned because they did not learn to swim and the clothes that they were wearing were not conducive to being able to learn that skill. And if they did want to learn to swim, they had to wear, uh, you know, blouses with sleeves and they had to have swimming shoes on and a skirt and a belt. And if you put all of that stuff on, you were kind of bound to sink um, instead of float. I cover Add that most of that was made out of wool as well. Yes, exactly. Wool and flannel, because those were the materials that were considered, you know, would that would keep you warm at the time, but they're not very buoyant. So um, there was a man who wrote a chapter on swimming in this book that I read from, I believe the 1890s. And he went and tried one of these women's um, swimming costumes on. And he was like, you can't do this. This is like impossible. Um, so that's just one example of how clothing has impacted women um, and their ability to exercise any kind of physical strength. Yeah, we most women in this in modern society think of women's sports as really starting at Title Nine, 
but it seems to me that that's not true. Would you, what would you say? I would say that Title IX is the single most important thing to happen in order to promote women playing sports. Um, and for people who aren't as familiar with it, it was a form of legislation um, that was passed by U.S. Congress in uh, the 73. early 1970s. And it prohibited gender discrimination at educational institutions that receive federal funding. Um, and so this applied to all kinds of different things, but what it's kind of known for is the impact it had in sports because public schools now had to devote an equal amount of resources to boys programs and girls programs. So girls had to get equal um, access to facilities, to equipment, uniforms, locker rooms, quality of coaching, publicity. And while a lot of schools are still not in full compliance with that, it did a huge amount to get girls and women playing sports. Um, in 1972, only one in 27 high school girls played a sport. And by 1978, just six years later, uh, it was one in four. So that was a huge um, increase in the number of girls who had access. Um, but even before that, there were girls um, and women who were playing sports, lifting weights, running, doing all of that. Um, but it just was not as easily accessible. I mean, if there weren't women playing sports already, we wouldn't have had the women available for the All-American Girls Baseball League that everybody loves that movie. And it is based on a true story. It is. And that's a good, I go into the clothing example there too, because there were a lot of rules around what they had to wear oh in gosh. order to make the sport palatable for people. So even though these were great athletes, they had to have their hair done a certain way. They always had to have lipstick moderately applied. Um, they had to wear skirts um, while they were playing. So it having those guidelines probably did help the league be popular because it it conformed with some traditional ideas around femininity, but also kind of like opened the door for um, for the public to see women competing and uh, being good at a sport. So kind of like a mixed bag there, but another example of clothing and sports. Yeah, I, I it makes me it makes me think a little bit about like the the conversation that is being had around women women's volleyball uniforms especially on the high school level where they have these teeny tiny shorts and it's very in my opinion very sexualized while your your female softball players are not as sexualized as the women in the all-american girls baseball league for instance and it's just like why are there certain sports that it's okay to sexualize these minor girls and why it why are there sports where it's not okay? Yeah, it's really interesting because often it's like, oh, what you're wearing is too much or then it's not enough. There, It, it seems like you're never hitting whatever the, the rules of the day are. Um, I think it, a lot of it kind of just goes back to like what outfits make the most sense for a particular sport. And then how does that square with our ideas about what women should be wearing. So 
It's um, a controversy that there is a high school that wants to get rid of white volleyball shorts because the teenage girls are afraid of their period leaking onto it during the middle of a game. It's like men must have picked the picked that up for them to not have thought of that to not no, that, we, that that didn't click. I remember that when I was in high school, I played basketball, and you know our we had two sets of uniforms and one set was white. And like, it's always something that you thought about when uh, you're wearing the white uniform. I just read that, I believe it was a WNBA team is the first to do away with white uniforms um, for that reason that, you know, players are more comfortable if they are wearing darker uniforms, um, which I think just makes sense. I think, I think it's definitely men inventing a lot of the uniforms and women just now starting to say hey yeah yeah well and it's one of those things like that you don't think about until um well and that you wouldn't think about if you weren't a woman right um which is a, a great reason why we need women in leadership positions and in decision making positions in all aspects of life because uh, there are a lot of factors that you just wouldn't know if you weren't in that particular situation. So if we go back to Title IX, for instance, I am I was reading an article recently where they were talking about how different schools are complying differently with Title IX. And that some schools are going with a one-for-one -one comparison, as in we have man's sport, women's sport, man's sport, women's sport. And each and they say that they're equal just because there's an equal number of sports, even though the football team might get $10 million and all of the female teams might get $5 million in total. Mm -hmm. And then other schools are going dollar for dollar, which means that you get one big man sport because men's sports usually cost more to get a good coach and then a whole bunch of women's sports. Do you have an opinion on that or any thoughts to that? Uh, I mean, I don't know too much about, I have heard the same thing and I know different schools comply in different ways um, and that a lot complain about the cost of football and then how much they then have to do for women. Um, but I guess my only, the only thing I hope that happens is that there's an equal investment in women being able to play sports because we get this argument especially in pro sports that the reason why men's sports are deserving of more money and attention and all of this is because they generate more revenue and they're more exciting to watch but the reason they typically generate more revenue is because more investment has been made in them in the first place and once you actually start to invest in women's sports, you see the fruits of that in increased viewership and excitement around games and, and all of that. But if people are never exposed to those sports in the first place, it's hard for them to make a connection with them. So for example, the NBA is 50 years older than the WNBA, and yet we are constantly seeing them compared to each other. But the NBA had such a long head start with promotion and um, talent coming into the league and little boys growing up knowing it's possible to be a professional basketball player. The NBA was not 
successful or a moneymaker in its early years. Nope. And the, the WNBA has been held to like much higher standards um, in its early years than the NBA was. So I think that you have to take all of those things into consideration when you're deciding whether something is uh, successful or not. I think women's soccer in the United States is the perfect example of that. It's that it's that sport that now little girls want to grow up to be soccer players and they know that they can do it. And now they're now these these professional women's soccer players who are great at their sport, doing better than the men's players are finally fighting for equal pay. Right. And I love to use that example when people do trot out the, well, men's sports just generate more revenue. What can you do about it? Because in the U.S., women's soccer generates more revenue than their male counterparts. And yet they have been fighting for equal pay. Um, you know, the number one selling soccer jersey on Nike.com is a women's soccer jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, you know, in the World Cup, like little boys are wearing women's soccer jerseys they're pumped and excited to cheer for them so i think it is a great example and and we saw like the lawyers for the um the national soccer uh organization saying like well men are just superior athletes like men are just better and that's why they should get paid more and that argument did not go over well um mm -hmm. it's just it's so rooted in the sexism and just this idea that we think that men are superior at physical activities, which is really a cultural construct. There are definitely biological differences between men and women, but this idea that like men are inherently more entertaining when they play soccer than women is absolutely not rooted in anything biological. At least American men. American men are no, in my personal opinion, American men are no good at soccer. Well, and that probably has to do with investment too. Like we can see that because just there's probably more investment for boys in sports like baseball and, and football. football in the U.S. And thus you see like the talent gap there would be my guess. Um, Whereas, you know, soccer is huge in other countries. And so there's just a bigger funnel of people playing. There's more opportunities, better coaching, all well, of that. And it all makes a difference. Little boys in Europe pick up a soccer ball and kick it around with their friends. Little boys in the United States pick up a stick and a rock and hit it against the wall. Yeah. It's, but, and little girls are now picking up soccer balls not yeah soccer balls I was about to say footballs some are picking my... up footballs but yeah I think I I, know... I I was talking to my in my Jamaican in-laws too recently <laughs> yeah yeah it's it really does like what you're exposed to makes a big difference in like what you're interested in doing and and what you hone your skills in and then like what you find entertaining to watch as well so um that is all like a cultural thing uh, that impacts our view on sports. Um, and so we can see that because it's different cross-culturally, it means it's not sort of like inborn into us. What do you think is the most liberating physical activity or a piece of clothing that has really changed the 
lives of women in the 20th century? Oh, well, okay. I'll name an activity and a piece of clothing, I guess. Um, for a piece of clothing, I'm going to go with the sports bra. Um, just made such a huge difference in women being able to be comfortable playing any sport. Um, the sports bra is relatively new. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like it was invented. I don't want to say something wrong, but I, I think around the 60s or 70s. I um, actually want to go later than that. You think so? I'm I want to I want to say the 80s, but that might just be when it was popularized. Yeah. I I'm going to think I think it's the 70s, um, but probably the 80s when it really caught on. I need to go. Um but before that, you know, it was really challenging um to work out. I know I would really struggle to run or do any kind of high impact exercise without a sports bra. And um, I cover a woman in my book named Pudgy Stockton, who was known as the queen of Muscle Beach in the 1930s and 40s. She was a weightlifter on the beach and she kind of had to make her own, um, her own swimsuit top that was more supportive and that was geared toward the activity that she wanted to do because what was available at the time was not did not suit her needs so sports bra I'll choose for a piece of clothing and for activity I think that this depends on sort of what you gravitate toward and what is um you know what resonates with you I think any kind of fitness activity could be a game changer but I think that lifting weights like strength training has really revolutionized um, our idea about what our bodies are capable of and um, what we think is possible. So I think the rise in recent years of things like CrossFit and powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting and Ninja Warrior training and anything along those lines that involves like picking up a barbell or using your body weight to get stronger to in many cases get bigger on purpose like, I think that yeah. has been really, um, that's been something really different. And I, I've seen a lot of women sort of change their perspective after participating in an activity like that. So the first, uh, the free swing tennis bra was invented in 75. The jock bra was invented in 77. And then Playtex mass produced the, uh, the jog bra, which became more of the yeah. the the sports bra that we knew in 1990 oh my gosh that's so late right yeah yeah, yeah. Like, so we would have bought jock my mother's my mother probably in the military bought jog bras yeah yes well thank goodness we have them now although they're they're still not perfect oh um, god no especially for large-chested like, large-chest really large-chested women Oh yeah. I struggled a lot. I ran a marathon. Uh, gosh, it's been like a decade now. Um, but I did so much research in terms of like what kind of bra would be best. And I was really like willing to invest in something good because I was running a lot and I got like what was considered top of the line. I was told it was like the absolute best. And I still experienced so much chafing and discomfort 
when I got done with that marathon and went to take a shower, my entire bra, like, like, like our, like our seventies <laughs> foremothers. Exactly. I was like, get out of here. But no, like I had rubbed, like the skin had rubbed off of me, even though I'd put on all this body glide, I taped up, I had done all this stuff to prevent this from happening, but I have like a rather large chest for my frame and it's just not built for support over that distance. So it was so painful to take a shower with the water beating down on that like rubbed raw skin. Um, but I think there are just in the past decade, there have been a lot more sports bras that have come out that are really taking women's actual shape into consideration. And um, also like everyone's chest is different. Like, so there's, it's also, definitely I an think area. a woman who's doing yoga would probably be, need a different sports bra or just a less constricting sports bra than someone who is running marathons, powerlifting, you're yeah. crossfitting, things of that nature. I mean, there are definitely those sports bras that are really just meant to be cute and just to show off. And while there's nothing wrong with that, if it does its job, you, someone needs to be able to direct a woman who is like, I'm going to run the New York marathon. Don't buy that one. Go over here and spend an right. extra 50 bucks. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. Like those cute ones are probably easier to design, like more fun to design, easier to produce, but then yeah, it's only yoga or really light impact exercises that you can wear them to do. So it's interesting though, to see the innovation that's coming out. And I, um, Hope we continue to see it. So I was um I was reading a book about um about early 19th century exercise and things of that nature. And it was talking about the impact of the bloomers and bicycling. Mm -hmm. And it and it seemed as though bicycling and the bloomers really just changed a lot of what women thought women's freedom and mobility in society. And it feels like a lot of things cascaded from that, from just that ability to go from one place to another and, you know, just start sweating from doing something. Like people were afraid of women sweating and beating hard oh, yeah. because they thought their uteruses were going to pop out. Yes. That is, yep. I love to talk about the bicycle um, and then attach to that bloomers because for me, it was one of the most interesting political connections I found when I was researching the book is between the bicycle and suffrage. So um, the bicycle came to be uh, popular in the 1890s. Before that, bicycles were really like considered death-defying contraptions that only young daredevils would ride toys they... for toys for the elon musks of their generation exactly people who could do a flip off the top of the bike you had to know how to take a header it was called um off one style of bike because it was so far off the ground and the only way to get off of it was to flip off of it um there was a, a bike called the bone shaker because it <laughs> rattled you so much but the safety bicycle came out um, and that basically looks exactly like what our bikes are today. We've had, you know, we've had some innovation since then, but you would recognize it as a bicycle. Um, and this was developed in the late 1880s because these had pneumatic tires, they had brakes, they had handlebars. So they became something that pretty much anyone could learn to ride. 
And the bike went viral at that point or the 1890s version of it. And it was a craze that women got in on in addition to men. And as you were just saying, like this idea that they could now travel alone, they could go somewhere without a chaperone. They were getting fresh air. They were feeling what it was like to, to sweat, to work their muscles. Um, it really galvanized them to say, hey, what else have we been missing out on? And um, what happens when we start shedding some of these layers, both literally and figuratively, um, and start wearing bloomers and we raise that hemline and we throw out the corsets, like we're feeling pretty good. Um, you know, what else can we go after? So the bicycle Susan B. Anthony said she felt like it had done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. And um, women use them in a literal sense to get to rallies to, um, uh, you know, for suffrage rallies, but they also were really like a metaphorical thing where when they had that little taste of independence, they, um, they started caring about local civics like now they care about potholes in the road and they want to say something about them and they start thinking about um that independence and what more um having more independence could do for them and they were also able to start getting jobs that were slightly further away from home so they were getting meeting new people and also bringing money in and money is always money is almost always freedom especially if you're single Absolutely. Um, I think kind of related to this idea of suffrage and freedom and all of that was at the same time that this is all going on, so is the circus. And the circus was this thing that shut towns down when it came around. Because back then, you don't have TV, obviously, you don't mm -hmm. have internet, you don't even have the radio. So in terms of entertainment, you don't have a lot that kind of everyone can tune into at the same time but when the circus came to town that is something where everyone in your town kind of comes together they're all part of this one experience and the um the experience of women in the circus was mixed um some were treated very poorly and they were sideshow acts and they did not have a good time but there were a handful of women who kind of rose to the top of the circus ranks became headliners and these women had a lot of power because they had independence and freedom. They were making good money. They owned property and they got to travel around often internationally at a time when traveling was not common. It was very expensive. And so they were exposed to diverse perspectives. And when they came to town, people listened to them because these were like celebrities. Um, and so some of the suffrage, big suffrage groups came out of the circuses. Uh, one of the women I highlight in my book is named Sandwina. She was a big circus star and she was part of her suffrage group for Barnum and Bailey. And um, people started to call her Sandwina the suffragette. And they felt like this is someone I can follow. Like this is someone who knows what they're talking about. They've seen the world, they have power. And these women felt like they could speak out because they were coming from a place of, um, of power and could exercise it. And I mean, also, wouldn't some of these women's costumes just be 
liberating as well as shocking for that day and age. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, to make, it's kind of like the, we talked about with the softball league of the forties, there were the circus, um, executives were very savvy. Like they knew what people wanted and they knew how to get them to come out to the circus. So they did often package these women in a way that was very feminine. Um, Sandwina, for instance, she was super strong. She could lift multiple men at a time and break iron bars and lie on a bed of nails, but they made sure to play up how beautiful she was, like how pleasing her visage was, what her arms looked like in a ball gown, like all of these sort of like things that lifting are, uh, all these dudes in a ball gown. Yeah. She, and she was, she would wear like a leotard that was probably much less than what the women were wearing at the time. So they were seeing more skin, but they always made sure to emphasize um, that she was a wife and a mother. That was very important. She was often asked in newspaper articles to talk about her children and laundry and like what she, her grocery shopping list for her kids, which was really crazy by the way, because she fed her kids a lot. She wanted them to be very strong too. Um, but back to the point. Um, yes, I think that this is the first time that a lot of people, including women are seeing someone who's kind of in this liberating outfit, doing this liberating thing and realizing like, Hey, there are other roles out there. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book and, and the photography and things like that and why, why people should pick it up on Amazon or wherever books are sold? Yes. So um, the book does have portraits of modern day athletes in it. I worked with celebrity photographer Sophie Holland to shoot um, 23 different athletes, and they're from all different sports. They represent all different backgrounds, body types, ethnicities. Um, it's a really wide cross section of uh, the fitness population. And I wanted to show that strength doesn't look just one way. We tend to have this idea in our minds that, you know, someone's strong, it's just this thing. But being strong can look um, a lot of different ways. And I don't want to pigeonhole women into any more body standards than we already have out there. So um, the photos are absolutely beautiful. And then the book... Um, as I've talked about, you know, kind of goes all the way back into ancient times and talks about these stories like the bicycle, like the circus, like the first marathon race and um, that a, a woman participated in and how, um, how that led to women even being able to run long distance at all. Um, just all of these stories about the trailblazers who made it possible for us to work out today. Uh, because it has been a very short amount of time that women have been able to work out for recreational purposes. And so I wanted to really shine a spotlight on the people who came before us and allowed us to get all of these benefits um, of physical strength, because I think they tie in so much to all aspects of our lives from mental to emotional to social. Um, so I wanted to really, uh, dig into how physical strength has evolved and how women have played a part in that. I mean, I, 
I've only had a chance to take a cursory look at your book. I've got two small children, but the photography is out of this world. Honestly, your photographer is great, but what honest it, I just, where can people find your book? Yeah, you like you said, you can find it wherever books are sold. It's online, on Amazon. Uh, I always recommend going to a local indie bookstore if there's one near you that you like to uh, give your business to. If it's not on the shelves, you can always order it. Um, but you can find out more information about it at HaleyShapley.com. And I'm also on Instagram at Haley Shapley, where I've been sharing some of the photos from the book, actually, this month for Women's History Month. So um, if you want to check out a sneak peek there, you can. That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to share or let let my listeners know that you're up to or what's coming next for you? I am just uh, working on my next book proposal, but not ready yet to share the details. It's a long process to write a book. So, and interestingly, at the beginning, a lot of it is just thinking, like just kind of letting it marinate in the back of your mind. I worked on Strong Like Her for several years um, and it was participating in a bodybuilding show that sort of got me um, really thinking about it at, at the beginning. Uh, because I found like people were reacting in such interesting ways to the fact that I was doing this. And some people thought it was really cool, but some people were like, oh, don't get hurt or don't change your body in a way that would be unattractive or, um, you know, how are you going to date while you do this? So um, it took me a while to sort of think about that and how I wanted to turn that into um, into something like a book. So still in that process with my next one, but continue to just love talking about Strong Like Her and all these issues that we've talked about today. Like I could talk forever about Title IX and sports bras and all of that because I think it's so interesting and has been really undercovered in, um, in books and journalism and all of that. I absolutely agree with you. And I hope that we can talk again when your next book comes out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on The Sexy Politico. I'll see you all next week. Bye.